Hi, welcome to Teach the Word. This is a sermon on 1 Peter, verses 1 through 12. It's the first in a series of several sermons uh, preaching through 1 Peter. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, we cry out before your throne that you would bring forth your word. Speak your word through me, Father God. Let me be small and you and your word be large. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's begin by reading the passage. So we'll go back to the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So <clears throat> I think you can break this up into uh, about four sections. Um, the first section really is just the introduction, the very beginning, first two verses. Um, just real, real simple. Just go back up to verse one. It's just stating the author, who's who's the apostle Peter, and the audience who are pilgrims of the dispersion in uh, Turkey. So there's a list there. Those are all Roman territories in modern day Turkey, and uh, <clears throat> it's unclear this the dispersion uh, or the the words diaspora and. What does that mean? Does that mean they are Jews? That, that word is only used three times in the New Testament. And two times it refers specifically to the Jews who are scattered abroad throughout the Roman world. Like um, in John 7, uh, 35, Jesus is saying he's going to go away. And where he goes, they cannot follow. He's talking about his death. And the religious leaders are like, "Where's what's he talking about? Is he going to go to the that dispersion? Talking about the Jews uh, who are scattered or also... The same thing comes up in the beginning of the epistle to James, where it says um, the the diaspora of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so this could be to a specifically Jewish audience, the diaspora of, or as, as is indicated by much later uh, uh, in the letter, um, chap verse, chapter 2, verse 10, he's talking about... Uh, how those who were <clears throat> uh, aliens, those who were scattered, 
who have now become gathered together as one people in the church. And that sounds like he's talking about Jews and Gentiles coming together. So people would <clears throat> take it to understand it's Peter's not using the term diaspora to refer specifically to Jews, but it's really unclear. Basically, we're not sure because that that verse in, in chapter two is actually a quote of, or really an allusion to Hosea, where God's calling those who are not his people, his people, those who are not beloved, beloved. But he's referring only to the nation of Israel there. So at any rate, we're not sure, but there's arguments either way. It's not that important. Uh, we do gather from the rest of the letter that it is written during a time of persecution because we see uh, that uh, it's talking a lot about suffering for Christ. Um, and this could be localized persecution because persecution happened all over the place. Um, or it could be empire-wide empire -wide persecution, which first of those massive empire-wide persecutions for the church was under Nero uh, in the early 80s, 60s. But it doesn't have to be Nero's persecution. It could be a localized persecution prior to that. But it does appear that Peter knows his audience is undergoing persecution because he seems to be writing to that aim. Anyways, that's enough for introduction. Let's just actually look at uh, uh, verse 2 where we see uh, that they are chosen. We see the Trinity in verse 2. These are chosen people. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, chosen in sanctification of the Spirit, and chosen for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so this is, God has chosen those who are in his church, and it's God, the, the, the Godhead, the three-part Father, Son, and Spirit has chosen you, chosen me, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, so we're chosen to become holy, and the Holy Spirit's at work making us holy. And for the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, we're chosen to have the blood of Christ applied to us and to submit ourselves to Christ. So we see the Trinity in verse 2. Uh, and then the, the second part of verse 2 is just a standard greeting that most New Testament letters have, this bit about grace and peace be multiplied to you. Something similar to that is in most of the epistles. Um, so then if you go to the end of verse, uh, so then verses, that's that's kind of the intro. So verses, starting with verse 3, we kind of get more into the meat of it, and I'd say verses 3 through 5 form their own little section, and it's basically the gospel message. This is where we have in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. So you see in the first part of verse 3 that <coughs> the dual nature of Jesus Christ, that he's both God and man. So you have, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus in his humanity, the Father is his God, because Jesus was fully man, just like you and me, and our Father is God. But Jesus in his divinity is the Son in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So in his, div in his divinity, it's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his humanity, it's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of these nuggets that points towards the dual natures of Christ that the early church uh, <clears throat> gleaned from Scripture when they formed that doctrine of the hypostatic union in the church councils. So, <clears throat> uh, that is, that, that is uh, the, the first part of verse 3. But the second part of verse 3 
3 is really the meat of the gospel, that God has this abundant mercy. It's not anything that I have done or you have done that we can do. It's not from us. It's from God. Because of his mercy, we are born again. Born again to what? To a living hope. How? Through Jesus' resurrection. So this is, this is something that um, is a challenge to me. Um, I hope it's a challenge to all of us, is this idea of reflecting on the gospel. It seems that the early church was reflecting on the gospel very frequently in its communication. Um, in nearly every letter of the New Testament, there's reflection on the gospel message, that God poured out his mercy on us, giving us what we do not deserve through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see that over and over again. And um, the challenge, I think, for us is to reflect on the gospel more than we do. How often is our communication with one another reiterating the gospel back and forth to each other? It seems like whenever the early church was sending messages back and forth, that was a priority in their messaging. Um, <coughs> in verse 4, we see what we are born to. We're born to this, that what that living hope was in verse 3. See, uh, said, uh, bought, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's Jesus' resurrection that provides that salvation, but uh, that rebirth. <clears throat> and what is this living hope? Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. So that's, that's in the ultimate end. For those who come to Christ, we are sons and daughters, and as sons and daughters, we have an inheritance, and that inheritance is reserved for us in heaven to be experienced at the end. Um, <clears throat> it's not able to be taken away. Um, why would that be important for his audience? Well, because they're undergoing persecution and by the government, and what happens in persecution is government comes and takes things away. They, they take away jobs, they take away possessions, they take away property. And uh, <clears throat> the believer can have hope to endure that kind of thing by reflecting on a heavenly inheritance that's that we have coming towards us. Um, <clears throat> let's look at verse 5. This Verse 5 is bringing it back to the present. So in the present, so we have the heavenly inheritance, but right now we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If you look at some other translations of this, like uh, the NIV phrases it as um, shielded by the power of God through faith until the last time. This idea that <clears throat> we're going to be taken to heaven uh, at that last time, but right now we're being shielded by God's power through our faith in him somehow. But we might ask ourselves, how does this shielding work? Because Peter's writing to an audience that's suffering persecution by they're losing their lives sometimes, and they're losing their physical security, well-being, property. Peter lost his life under persecution shortly after he wrote this letter, because uh, Peter died in the, in the <clears throat> according to church tradition, in the early, in the, in the 60s, the decade of the 60s. And this letter couldn't have been written that, that <coughs> Somewhere had to be written somewhere between, you know, Acts uh, and the 60s. So there's a 30-year slot there. And not long after this, Peter loses his life. So what does it mean to be shielded? Um, how exactly are we protected? Uh, <clears throat> I find that this verse, especially in the rendering in the NIV, is 
very similar to Ephesians 6.16. Ephesians 6.16 talks about taking up the shield of faith, whereby we extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one that he's throwing at us. This verse is talking about how the power of God shields us uh, through faith. Just uh, the similarities with faith, faith, shielding, and God's power at work um, are, are, are strong similarities. <clears throat> so <clears throat> basically, what does it mean to be shielded by faith or protected by the power of God through faith? It doesn't appear that it's protection from persecution. <clears throat> I think that, and I'd suggest that it, it's protection from the effects of persecution. So <clears throat> I heard a while back uh, a radio commentary, a breakpoint radio commentary from the Colson Center talking about uh, some family that had been in the Eastern Bloc under Soviet uh, persecution um, of Christian family and had somehow made it their way to the West. But they told the story about how um, the Communist Party was cracking down on the church and on church leaders, pastors, and uh, taking stuff and uh, <coughs> taking people, throwing them in prison. And uh, this is a, a child sharing what their <coughs> the, com- the message that their father gave them was, that they can't take our joy. <clears throat> they can come, they can take our house, they can take me, they can throw me in prison, but they can't take your joy. That's internal, that's inside of you, that's something that can't be taken. And in a sense, I believe that's what this shielding is about. It's about <clears throat> God's power is shielding us, like that shield of faith is protecting us from darts that the enemy's throwing at us, uh, not the darts that uh, <clears throat> affect our physical state of whether or not we get thrown in jail for the gospel or not, but the darts that affect our internal state, how we react to being thrown in jail for the gospel, or how we react to our father being thrown in jail for the gospel as a child. God's power through our faith in him is, is able to protect us from the, the adverse effects of that. <clears throat> you know, keep the enemy from, in a sense, stealing our joy as the breakpoint uh, commentary was sharing the story of that that child who was an adult who shared it when they were sharing it. So the power of God protects, can protect us from <coughs> when the power of God is at work um, through faith. When we have faith in God, it protects us in some very difficult situations. It protects us from bitterness. It protects us from anxiety and fear. It protects us from anger and from hatred, from all manner of things. It allows us to hold on to a little piece of light of the light of heaven in the midst of the darkness here and now. <clears throat> so I think that's a, that kind of forms the section about the gospel, the salvation message, for three through five. And then the next, <clears throat> like I said, there's kind of four sections here. The intro, <clears throat> one and two, the gospel, kind of uh, three through five. And then I think <clears throat> verses six through nine form their own little section. That's about, Pain, suffering, trial, that which is adverse. Um, and it's very similar, the content here, to, uh, to James 1 and Hebrews 12. They're all, all of these are talking about painful things, difficult things, and joy able to be experienced by the believer in them. Um, so if we look, starting in verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. So we're able to greatly rejoice in our future salvation and this present protection by God's power, even though we experience the pain of all different kinds of trials. So some, depending on the translation, it's all various trials, manifold temptations, 
all, all kinds of things. So <clears throat> we're not just talking about persecution here. We're talking about anything that grieves, which is a lot of things in life bring grief, right? Even though, <coughs> so it says grieved by various trials. Um, so even this could be every one of us in this room is, is currently, I am sure, experiencing grief from something, you know, illness, loss, death of a loved one, some chronic pain, depression, addiction, uh, the, the, the struggle with sin that's real, that, that's beating us down, that we can't seem to have victory over. There's suffering in every one, any one of these things. There's suffering in, in all of our lives. And <clears throat> the, the, that's what's being addressed here, various trials. Um, so <clears throat> there's this little phrase, a little three words, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. <laughs> well, we might ask the question, <laughs> why does it need to be? Why do we need to have grief in life? Um, <coughs> seems to be <coughs> that the New Testament's answer is that God is doing something with pain and with suffering, with trials. Um, good things come from the crucible of adversity. Chief among these is intimacy uh, with God. Um, think of this analogy that uh, happens all the time with my the, my girls, the age they are, is that they can be off doing their own thing, not wanting to really interact with me, not wanting me to pick them up, not wanting to experience kind of intimacy with me because they want to be independent. And then they could uh, fall and scratch, scratch their knee and bleed, right? Or pinch their finger somewhere in pain. And then they come to me because of the pain and they want me to pick them up and hold them. That, that same thing as the dynamic that happens between us as the children of God and God as our Heavenly Father is that pain, grief, brings us towards God. It gives us that opportunity to experience intimacy with him. <coughs> I need water, but I don't have any. Um, that's the kind of thing that God's doing in trials, but it's, it's not just in intimacy where we have the opportunity, uh, while we lean into God, the father during the trial, we have that opportunity to change. So there's opportunity for intimacy and there's opportunity for change. That's character growth, you know, becoming like Christ. Like if we look down to the next verse, verse uh, seven at the end, uh, end of verse seven, it says um, <coughs> that it may be found that this is you may be found to the praise, honor and glory to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be found to be to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, your faith is going to be found for, to the praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to have to be your character is going to have to be Christ-like. And trials allow for that to happen. They're 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 basically um, a time for us to to exercise uh, faith in God. Uh, but. It's not easy. There's nothing, it's not like this is anything easy about this. Sometimes we do not know what God is doing through a trial for years. Think about the episode that we see in John 9 where uh, there's a man who was born blind who's an adult. And <clears throat> his disciples say, why was this guy, why is this guy suffering like this, Jesus? Why was he born blind? Um, <coughs> is it because of his sin? Is it because of his parents' sin? Jesus says, Neither. It's so that right now, God's power can be made manifest and he, God can be glorified by me healing him. And Jesus heals him. But for what, 20, 30 years, this man doesn't know why he's suffering, but he's suffering. Um, then, there's, then there's a worse case. Job's is a worse case because Job, in the narrative of Job, never even knows 
anything about the heavenly dialogue between uh, God and the divine council and Satan, God's dialogue about Job's righteousness and Job's going to curse you if you take this away from him. And God says, no, he's not. And I'll prove it. And he proves it. Job doesn't know anything about that dialogue. All Job knows is that he suffers a lot, but he holds on to God in the suffering. So sometimes we don't see what's going on in the suffering. We don't see God's purposes in suffering. But we can always rest assured of two things in suffering. We, it's an opportunity for intimacy, and it's an opportunity for change, for character growth. Um, and verse, verse 7 basically shows us that. It talks Verse 7 talks about, uh, if need be, what's the need? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, um, <clears throat> may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see that uh, trials are... are a faith use exercise. So trials give us the opportunity to lean into the sovereignty of God, to trust in his provision, his goodness, to trust that he will carry us through, even in the midst of the crushing and unbearable weight of the trial. Even when we feel that we are powerless but to fear, we're powerless but to hate, powerless but to sin, God's power through our faith will enable us to not. God's power will enable us to not but only through faith, only through trusting God. Trials build faith. They give us the opportunity to exercise it. And when we exercise it, like a muscle, it grows. Exercising faith in God, that he is good, that he knows what he's doing. So then we see uh, in verse 8 that love and joy reiterated. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you will, you will rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So yeah, we have this love with God and intimacy with God that is amplified and grew, caused to grow through trials. Um, <coughs> we see what the in verse nine what the end of faith is: receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls on earth. We receive salvation from the harmful effects of these trials. We don't have to be hit by the enemy's flaming darts in trial by faith in God's power. It's protecting power. And one day, we receive salvation from trials altogether. That one day when God wipes away every tear from our eyes. And we are ushered into our heavenly inheritance. That kind of ends the section on trials 6 through 9. And then the, the last section is more about... Uh, the salvation message and how how it was prophesied of long ago. The old verse ten talks about how Old Testament prophets prophesied about Christ's coming and the good it would bring. Um, and eleven talks about Christ's suffering, how super really good things our salvation came from Christ's suffering. It's kind of like an analogy that <coughs> the same is true of our suffering. Jesus' suffering brought about really good things. Our suffering also brings about good things in our lives. Intimacy with God, character growth, the genuineness of our faith, the, the opportunity to exercise faith in God's goodness and his character. <coughs> um, 
And then it's just talking verse 12, just talking about how the Old Testament prophets were writing about this day, that we live in a very exciting day when the, God's mercy is poured out and access to salvation is granted to all through faith in God. A day that that the Old Testament prophets didn't live in, but they looked forward to. So how's our ta- what's our takeaway? Our, um, just our... Uh, you know what's the action steps? How can we how can we take this scripture passage and apply it to our lives this week? So I got I would suggest two things. Um, first off, we see that by faith in Christ we have access to God's abundant mercy and we're able to be reborn again. Heaven awaits not by our works but by God's mercy. So one action step I think is to meditate on the gospel message. Let's commit uh, each of us to each other as a body. Let's commit to reflecting on God's mercy to save me personally as a sinner, <coughs> not because of anything <coughs> I have, I can, or will do. His mercy. Uh, at the start of our devotional time each day this week, why don't we reflect how God in his mercy has saved us? Let's make a commitment to do that seven times in the coming seven days. And as a second action step, a second takeaway uh, from this passage that Peter was writing to the pilgrims scattered abroad. Let's exercise faith in our trials. Every one of us is going to experience something grievous this week, some form of trial, something that brings pain. Uh, Let's exercise faith in that trial. Let's experience the love of God and joy in the trial. So when Satan throws, comes to you and throwing darts this week, darts like, you know, you're no good. God's punishing you with pain. God God doesn't care about you. He's forgotten you. He's bringing this upon you. These darts. We then need to allow the power of God to shield us by holding up that shield of faith. Let the power of God shield us through faith. Let's exercise the faith and have faith, declare that faith that he made us exactly how he wants us to be. That he has us exactly where he intends to have us at this moment. That he is good and he is loving. Faith that lets him hold us and and let us cry in his chest for pain. Let's experience the love of God and the joy of salvation in the midst of trials by exercising faith. So that's our that's our two takeaways. Let's thank you. Lord power and enable us to trust in you as your people in the hardships that we experience in life. Amen.